When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where T is for Thunderball, the fourth James Bond film released in 1965, starring Sean Connery as 007. My name is Tom Butler, and joining me as we head beneath the waves of Connery's fourth outing as Bond, he does not drink, he does not smoke, he does not make love. What do you do, Mr. Brendan Duffy? Uh, This podcast, (laughs) clearly. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we've got time for. Yes, so uh, it's just me and you this week, Brendan, so I'm looking forward to this one. Um, Thunderball is an interesting one. I know for a fact that I watched Thunderball as a 10-year-old thanks to my 1992 diary, the only diary I ever kept. What, 92 is the only diary you ever kept? I I kept one year of a diary and it was 92, and I know for a fact on one one of the dates, I should have checked it before I came on, but uh, yeah, I watched Thunderball. So um, I know this is one that I've watched many, many times. I've got a lot of thoughts about it. What about you? Is it one that you return to? I find it quite slow. I don't like the underwater scenes. 
Um, and yet it, it does have a few iconic scenes that I do enjoy, but because I don't return to the film, it means I don't see those scenes as much as I'd like to. Yeah, it has got some iconic moments within it, but there is a lot to get through. It is an epic, epic Bond movie, obviously coming at a time where Bond mania was at its absolute peak, and we'll cover that, I guess, in great detail. But as a synopsis from the MGM website, the thrills never let up as James Bond dives into this riveting adventure filled with explosive confrontations and amazing underwater action sequences. Connery brings his characteristic style and magnetism to Agent 007 as he goes above the Call of Duty and to the bottom of the ocean when he travels to Nassau to track down the villainous criminal Emilio Largo who is threatening to plunge the world into a nuclear holocaust. Does that sum it up nicely? I think so, yeah. There's a lot more as well on top of that, isn't there? Yes, indeed. Um, But I've touched on it already. I mean, this film um, is the Bond film that came um, in the wake of the huge popularity of Bond, right? Yeah, it, this this was where they'd realised what the Bond machine was and how they could utilise it, I think. Uh, look at, looking at, you know, what happened from, from 65 onwards. Um, so in terms of the box office as well, you see that Bond is making making inroads on other other films as well. So just in the top 15 box office takings of 1965 so we've got help which we've previously spoke about which is obviously heavily influenced by bond um our man flint yeah yeah. um what's new pussycat which interestingly is another song for tom jones so yeah that's that's two in 1965 he's got um then of course thunderball is in at number three and then the top two are made up as dr shivago and the sound of music which absolutely smashed it at the box office um, which we've mentioned Sound of Music because of the TV broadcast in, I can't remember what year, yes. Diamonds Are Forever, wasn't it? <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. 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 So you can see there's Bond's having repercussions. People are churning these films out. They're, they're churning spy spoofs and spy films out. Um, Ipcris File as well, was that 65? Around yeah. then. Um, so yeah, absolutely huge. In In early 65... Connery actually attended the French premiere while they were shooting. Uh, it was the French premiere for Gold... It must be Goldfinger, right? 65. Yeah, yes, yeah. it is, yeah. And he drove the Aston Martin DB5. And, you know, he was accompanied by six girls on motorcycles to the cinema. But at one point, he was he was accosted and a female fan jumped, dived. She dived through the open window onto his lap. So people just... There was hysteria everywhere regarding Bond. And there's an article in Time magazine in June 65. And it basically talked about the Bond mania that was was sweeping the globe at the time. And there were reruns going on in America as well. Um, the adverts were all James Bond is back to back. So they were showing Dr. No from Russia with Love. Um, double build across the US. In the New York area, they packed out 26 cinemas. And it took $650,000 in a week, um, that double bill. Wow. So at the time, you can see that was a lot of cash for a rerun as well. So, yeah, the, the films, they were grossing more and more each time as we've we've covered. We've now covered the previous, the first three. So, yeah. Kept breaking box office records. Also in 65, uh, Man with a Golden Gun was top of bestseller list. So that novel had been released. Fleming, of course, had died the year before. 
So it, it was worldwide. In Tokyo, the queue for Goldfinger was half a mile long. Then you had Brazil, where From Russia With Love, it broke all the records that they would had before. Even, even Beirut, you know, it, it just seemed it didn't let up. It was across the world. People were mad for Bond, um, whether it's the books or the films or the merchandise, which we're going to touch on later. Or films that were like it. And films that were like it, of course. Other studios cashing in and, uh, well, and MGM cashing in as well themselves. But before Doctor No, sort of the spy genre was very different, very slow, very based on war, wartime efforts. But after Goldfinger and then moving into Thunderball, it just took off in a completely different way. There was more than 30 spy films released in the USA in 1966. So, yeah, you can see TV series, films, they're just trying to cash anything they can. You know, milk that cow, milk the cash cow. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned Japan, and Japan's got somewhere that'll come up later mm. um, uh, when we talk about the premiere. But uh, yeah, it's um, it just speaks about that volume, that that global appeal of the spy genre. I mean, you know, when you think about the film history, you look back and you think, oh, you know, westerns were popular then. Um, you talk about superheroes being popular now, uh, action films in the eighties, but yeah, sick in the sixties. You know, these spy films were 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 big business. So in terms of Thunderball itself. We have covered the story behind Thunderball at great length many, many times. And if you want full details of the sort of the legal dispute behind that, I would recommend our Never Say Never Again episode. Um, but in brief, uh, Ian Fleming published the book Thunderball in 1961, and that was inspired by an unmade movie that he'd worked on with Kevin McClory and the writer Jack Whittingham. Uh, but when the book was published, it was hit with a lawsuit by Kevin McClory, who claimed co-author rights. Uh, and in 1963, the case was settled. All future copies of the book had to be assigned r- with a writing credit to Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham, while Kevin McClory was assigned the full copyright for all the unused screenplays for Thunderball and the film rights to make Thunderball. So in 1964, uh, with Bond uh, being massive at the box office with Goldfinger, Kevin McClory announced his intention to make Thunderball for the big screen with a new James Bond and Richard Burton was linked with the role at this stage. But it was all it was all bluster. He was already negotiating with Cubby and Harry to co-produce it. Um, he was obviously using that as leverage to get a better deal for himself. Um, the credits of Goldfinger said that the next film would be on a Majesty's Secret Service, but with the opportunity to make Thunderball on the table, they took it and the deal was made in November 1964. Now, the deal that they made was that the film Thunderball would be produced by Kevin McClory in association with Cubby and Harry. McClory himself would get $250,000 in cash, plus 20% of the profits, on the condition that he didn't attempt to remake Thunderball for 10 years. I mean, come on. These films aren't going to last for 10 years, are they? <laughs> um, and talking about it in his biography, Cubby said, we didn't want anyone else to make Thunderball. We had the feeling that if anyone else came in and made their own Bond film, it would have been bad for our series. After Goldfinger, we naturally felt we knew more about Bond than anyone else. So I went ahead, made the deal with McClory to ensure that the best of Fleming stories could be our film. And let's not forget, this was the one that they wanted to make as the first Bond film when they got the uh, rights. But because of the McClory situation, they went ahead and made Doctor No instead. 
Yeah, but I mean, also the technology wasn't really there, was it, as well? So the fact that they've had to wait a few years has, has worked well for them, I think. Absolutely, um, yeah. It is incredibly important they did this, to be fair. If you think a rival bond was made at this point, it, this this is where it could have got done damage. You know, as we move later on, we get to never say never again. It doesn't really do any damage, does it? It doesn't really affect it. Um because it's such a established series by then. But at this point, you, yeah, you definitely want to be making the most of getting established as the, the main Bond. So in terms of the script, Richard Maybaum, he was signed on and he wanted to revisit that Thunderball draft that he had first written pre-Doctor No. So four years on, he basically added what he knew the Bond formula was. So the jokes, the gadgets, you know, everything that made it a success was added into the script, which meant that the two scripts are really very different because you take out all that original original stuff and insert what what fans wanted to see at the cinema. So yeah, um, Maybound said that Hitchcock said to him, if I have 13 bumps, I know I have a picture. And by bumps, he meant, he meant shocks and high points, thrills, twists, um... He said, Mr. Broccoli and Mr. Saltzman and myself have not been content with 13 bumps. We aim for 39. Our objective (laughs) has been to make every foot of film pay off in terms of exciting entertainment. So his screenplay was then given polish by TV writer uh, and playwright John Hopkins. And um, Saltzman said that the the screenplays at this point were were a group effort in in the writing all the conceptions and uh, adapting from the from the book, and obviously, of course, with the artwork, you know, they'd then work with Ken Adam, and Ken Adam would come up with ideas as well. So it really was truly collaborative, as we've spoke about many, many, many times before. And Cubby said that in the story, in the casting, even in the set designing and the gimmicks, all of the thoughts that go into, for instance, the DB five, Harry and I are involved. We, all of us collectively have huge arguments i thought that was interesting um (laughs) all good natured Mm. but they're important so that out of it comes what you see on screen good bad or indifferent so yeah i mean by this point like we said they know what they're doing don't they so it's a case of giving fans more yeah i mean it's they've got the team that they like to to work with right Mm -hmm. and they've got um, a formula that they've hit on with Goldfinger so uh, I guess it's just bigger, better, more um, is the situation that they're at James Bond is in operation and what an operator he is in Ian Fleming's Thunderball So in terms of the director now dialing it back when the original idea for Thunderball came about when it was Ian Fleming and Kevin McClory working on it Kevin McClory came on board as the director, he had long wanted to direct Thunderball himself. He was—that's how he'd got into the picture. But by entering uh, into this um, deal with Eon, uh, but basically directing it was completely out of the question for Kevin McClory. So um, they thought uh, they turned to Guy Hamilton, who um, they wanted to direct. He had just directed Goldfinger, and they met him in LA, and he asked them they they said do you want to do it and he said no i've run out of ideas he felt creatively spent by goldfinger and they did try again 
uh, second time in Vegas and they brought Kevin McClory with him to work his magic and charm. But again, he turned it down, said it didn't race his motor. Um, so they returned to Terence Young, who directed the first two Bond movies. Um, and he said, I only agreed to do Thunderball because in a childish way, I wanted to prove that anything you can do, I can do better. It was really <laughs> childish of me. Um, but I mean, Terence Young is the man who is credited with giving Bond, Bond his swagger, right? Mm. Um, so if, if they're going to turn to anyone, Terence Young, I guess, is the right man to do it. Um, he's a very sophisticated sort of... Uh, charming erudite individual uh, he brought a lot of that, those qualities to bond himself so uh, yeah good uh, good safe pair of hands for thunderball um for the rest of the crew you've got ted moore as a cinemato- as the cinematographer long time bond cinematographer his fourth bond film in a row and this um film is the first james bond film to be shot in the widescreen process panavision and uh, when we saw these at the cinema in the summer that really stood mm. out to me that sort of widescreen vista of, of Thunderball. It is a um, like a travel uh, travelogue type movie, isn't yeah. it? And you see every every location in in super wide, super um, widescreen, uh, which is which is beautiful. Uh, you got Peter Hunt as the editor. His fourth Bond film in a row, and he's working alongside Ernest Hostler. And Peter Hunt also shot some second unit as well. And this is where he really starts to come into the fore of uh, becoming bigger and uh, more important to the Bond films. Production design is by Ken Adam, art direction by Peter Merton, set decoration by Peter Lamont. So you've got three Bond production designers all working on one movie mm. there. You can see the sort of the production line of the of the creatives at play there. Then you've got special effects by John Steers. He won an Oscar for it. More on him in a minute. And we have covered him at detail as well. And then, of course, you've got Bob Simmons on stunts. But for the first time, Bob Simmons isn't doing the gun barrel on the James Bond film. This is the first Bond film where Sean Connery does the gun barrel for himself. Yes, and obviously he plays 007 in the film. And um, But at this point, cracks are starting to appear in his fourth appearance. He said a few things um, around the time. So there are a lot of things I did before Bond, like playing the classics on stage, that don't seem to get publicised. So you see, this Bond image is a problem in a way, and it's a bit of a bore but one has just got to live with it. So his deal had been significantly enhanced at this point, and he would actually receive 5% of the producer's profits. A Cubby and Harry making any money on this one? It's giving a lot away, aren't they? <laughs> um, you know, despite this, Connery, you can tell he's starting to think now. He said, I can't see the cycle going on past the next film, but who knows? America seems to lap them up. My only grumble about the Bond films is they don't tax one as an actor. I, I get what he's saying, and, and you see his career post-Bond. He was looking for meteor roles, definitely. Martine Bezik. So she'd auditioned for uh, the first Bond film, Doctor No, and she was actually in from Russia with Love, playing one of the gypsy girls, Zora. And um, she said that Harry Saltzman didn't want her making a second appearance in a Bond film. He said, uh, we don't have the same one twice. They're all Kleenex. Throw them out. <laughs> um, but Terence Young, he wanted her for the part of Paula Kaplan. And um, he said, don't be ridiculous. She's a Jamaican. And he actually fought for her. So he put his foot down on this one. Um, and she said when she turned up to the island, she hadn't seen Sun in years. 
She said I was grey and I was thin. When we got to Nassau, I was told to lie in the sun and eat. I had to get a tan. Hard life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then we've got Bernard Lee returning as M. Uh, Desmond Llewellyn returning as Q. Um, and he gets he gets some some he gets to go away, doesn't he? In this one, feel Q. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anthony Dawson. Now he's he's uncredited as Ernst Avra Blofeld, who's voiced by Eric Pullman. But they're both uncredited in this. So I think it's a question mark, isn't it, on this? Is it? Yeah, I think it might be, yeah. And of course, Anthony Dawson had been in Doctor No, hadn't he? Yes. And from Russia with Love. And from Russia with Love, yeah. He voiced Yeah. He voiced Blofeld. Is that right? Well, well he was the body of... Was, he was the body he of was Blofeld, the body. I think. Just see the Blofeld episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've got all that detail in there. <laughs> but what about new cast? Well, I mean... Talking about previous episodes, we've reached the point now. We've only got two more films to go. We've done all these characters before. Mm-hmm. So I'm really just going to rattle through the new cast um, and just give you some sort of footnotes on these. You've got Claudine O'Gare as Domino. Um, they had looked at Julie Christie first. Uh, she was a hot property at the, moment, at the time, but they decided against Julie Christie after a disappointing audition. Then they hired Raquel Welch. Um, but she was released from the film at the request of the 20th Century Fox boss, Richard Zanuck, who wanted her for Fantastic Voyage. So she left this to play the role in Fantastic Voyage. And then, obviously, they got uh, Miss, a former Miss France, Claudine Auger, but who was uh, dubbed in the film by Nikki van der Zeele. Then you've got Luciana Paluzzi as Fiona Volpe. Um, she had auditioned to play Domino, but landed the role of Volpe instead. Um, and in the script, her name was Fiona Kelly. So they changed their name to Volpe to reflect uh, Luciana's Italian roots. Then you've got Molly Peters as Patricia Fearing. And she was dubbed by Barbara Jefford. Um, villains, you've got Adolfo Celli as Emilio Largo. Again, dubbed by Robert Rietti. There's loads of dubbing on this movie. Um, uh, we've covered him very recently and Robert Rietti, actually. So see the previous episodes for those. Um, you've got Guy Dolman as Count Lippi. Um, and then you've got Philip Locke as Vargas, who I think we'll cover under the V episode, but he is an RSC um, actor, so Royal Shakespeare Company, and was well known at the time for playing villains. He'd also trained at RADA as well. And you've got Michael Brennan as Janny. That's his sort of counterpart, Vargas's sort of uh, co-hench person. And then Bob Simmons has an acting role as Colonel Jacques Bouvard right in the opening scenes where he's, first of all, he's a woman, but then they switch it for, for Bob Simmons. It's a great switch, mm-hmm. I think. Um, Allies-wise, you've got a couple of really good ones here. You've got Rick Van Nutter as Felix Leiter. On the commentary there, they call him Rick Van Nutter. So hmm. I'm going to go with Van Nutter. He was the third actor to play a role, married to Britt Eklund at the time. He was also redubbed for this movie for some reason, even though he was uh, uh, fit for the part. Then you've got acclaimed actor Earl Cameron as Pinder, who is Bond and Lighter's contact in Nassau. Now, Earl Cameron, uh, he's from Bermuda, but he is a real icon of British cinema. And I wasn't aware of this really until um, uh, researching this podcast, but he is apparently one of the first black stars of the British film industry. He's hundreds of credits to his name. He died recently and had just incredible obituaries. So he has a very, very small part in this, but Earl Cameron is a titan of screen um so just wanted to yeah just say mention him uh in in that but that's that's basically all the new cast uh, and all the cast gathered so um we can take it into production 
Yes, we can. And absolutely rapidly, like I touched on, that the premiere for Goldfinger in France was taking place at the same time as they, the cast and crew started filming in Chateau d'Anet near, um, near a place called Droy. Dro- that's probably completely wrong pronunciation, but that's in northern, northern France. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Still, still releasing the previous film and they're already on to the next. Well, I mean, that's money, isn't it? They, they need to keep these uh, production lines yeah. going, don't they? I suppose it, it, it works well if you've got the premiere, you know, in the same country. So, yeah, the scene where we see the um, the jetpack. So, obviously, this is a massively famous gadget. And it, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because the jetpack is kind of synonymous with Bond. And yet, he yes. only used it in 1965. It's yes. as though he, he constantly uses it. But if you think of a jetpack... What character do you do you think of? It's it's likely going to be Bond, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I guess it it's one of those that comes back in the video. Well, it's in the video games. Yeah, I was going to say the other person with the jetpack is Boba Fett, isn't it? Uh, but you don't watch Star Wars, so uh, that's lost on you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But if you're thinking of movie jetpacks, it's bonded Bob. Yeah, it, I think. Um, and Rocketeer, obviously. Yeah, that's, that's cheating, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, this uh, this device was either called the jetpack or a rocket belt, and it was developed by a company called Bell Textron in the fifties, and uh, it was made for troops. So they would jump um, whilst on the battlefield. They'd jump over things, um, obstacles that they couldn't get past. Um, but the the it only lasted like the uh, what was it? It's not flight, is it? But twenty one seconds in the air is the air, air time. time. Yeah, um, well, it's still impressive, isn't it? Still, still take you a decent length. Um, but have you seen the yeah. modern equivalent now that they've got? Where you strap yes. onto the arms, it looks amazing. Yeah, and actually, they're in use. The Royal Navy uses them um, because. Who was it? I think it was, I heard Samira Ahmed talking about it and she'd been to a Royal Navy event and they had them uh, actually all flying around the ships on these jetpacks. I think, I think jetpacks are coming back to Bond. I think I've got a feeling. Yeah, I think it'd be a, a smart thing to do because they, they've used, Mountain Rescue used them, I think in Wales as well. Mountain Rescue, yeah. that's it, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think bringing it back would be, would be very interesting, especially with their, the modern, uh, the modern versions, yeah. Yeah, and they have tried to bring them back before. I think we talked about on the the world is not enough episode. I think um, Purvis and Wade are quite keen to bring them back. Um, they've talked about that before, um, and obviously we do see it on screen in Die Another Day as well. Oh yeah, don't mention that. <laughs> so watch this space uh, for for more. But in terms of this scene, um, so they had two U.S. Army experts to to assist, and Bill Souter. Um, he performed the stunt now to maintain you know to look like bond you would have him just do it on his own when you just strap it and he'd go off but um bill Souter he insisted on full safety precautions and uh and put a used a helmet while while doing it which meant later on sean connery had to shoot at pinewood a, a, a him putting the helmet on um, yeah, it's a rear projection insert, yeah. isn't it? It's really, uh, it's really noticeable. Yeah. It, it, I guess, it depends on what um, what person you get to perform a stunt. But some of the stories we've heard in our other podcast episodes, you'd get people do it without a helmet, wouldn't you? 
Yeah. I, to be honest, I would uh, when I read about this, I, I I think I'd always assumed it was like wires and stuff. I didn't think they'd actually done it with a jetpack. I think I thought the same. It it doesn't actually look like a like it's real. It doesn't look no, real, it does it? It's almost too perfect, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, uh, incredible. But this sequence, it was meant to end with a crane shot of Bond driving away. But they, they integrated this into the title sequence where he's shooting the water cannons and just thought, because it's a water-based film, why not use that to as a nice transition? What are your thoughts on the pre-titles for Thunderball? I really like the fight, I have to say. Yeah. I think I think that's... Um, it's a good moment. Is it, they use that fight in uh, auditions. Is that right? Is that one of them? Is it that one? I get confused Is which one they one? use. Yeah, I, I, or is it? I feel like it might be the one from Honor Majesty's. That That's they it. Use, it's that but one. It's a very similar yeah. It's the same thing. Same isn't vibe. It? Yeah. Same vibe. Yeah. It's sort of quite a brutal sort of um, yeah fisty cuffs, isn't it? Um, but it's only four minutes long, so it's it's a nice quick one, but quite a lot happens in it. Yeah, I would say it's probably one of the lesser, sort of the least impactful pre-titles. Yeah, it's not it's I not think. a classic by by any means. No, but it's it's like a tiny little movie in 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 four minutes, which is what you want. It's what it should be. Coffee, medium sweet. Two medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? So from France, we go to the Bahamas. So in March 1965, the production moves to the Bahamas. And basically, the film takes place in the Bahamas. So this takes up a huge part of it. Um, Cubby and Harry chartered a whole plane for the cast and crew to fly from Heathrow to Nassau. And it was a legendarily boozy affair, according to reports from people who were there. And Kevin McClory, as the producer... Uh, he knew the islands of the Bahamas very well, and so he that sort of helped a lot with a lot of the goodwill with the people on the island. And they mainly shot on location on Paradise Island. And I'm going to confess here, I don't know the Bahamas at all. So if I get any of the names wrong, then, uh, yeah, apologies. Um, so just some of the places that they visited and uh, that they, they shot. Obviously, one of the main places is, 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 is Palmyra, Palmyra, Largo's home. And that was a place called Rock Point, and it's a villa on the northern shore of the main island of New Providence. It's along the along Bay Street, and it's got that shark pool, that distinctive shark pool, which is made to look like an integral part of the house, but actually it's it's just a tidal overspill in the front garden, and there's never been a connecting tunnel um, to connect it to the main pool. That's just all sort of movie magic, but they did use real sharks, and we'll talk about those in a minute. Uh, another place they visited in Nassau was Cafe Martinique, and that is a real place, but it's now called Atlantis. Um, and for that scene, they packed it out with locals. They invited um, all the local sort of uh, dignitaries down 
and plied them with free champagne and caviar and even offered a best a prize for the best dressed couple so when you see the people milling around they're real people who live in the bahamas um that one of the more sort of distinctive moments in in that location is the junk canoe so um they requested that the island uh, stages the annual boxing day junkanoo uh, festival which is like a mardi gras type parade at easter which is when they were there filming um so this was like they only ever did it at boxing day and it was a massive massive event um but they got the island to basically put it on again and basically the whole island turned up in their droves because it was a chance for another party um so the parade that they put on for the film ended up being two miles long and they basically just had to let the junk canoe happen and they filmed around it um and they could never get it to stop and like can you reset and we'll do it again because basically if they tried to stop it they said the whole island would begin rioting so uh, they just basically had to work around this uh, this crazy carnival and that's why it's got such a, a wild atmosphere when you watch it on screen um you, uh, somewhere else in Nassau that they filmed, you've got the um, uh, where the Vulcan bomber uh, crash lands is in the sea off Rose Island, which is the north northeastern coast of New Providence Island. And it's hidden alongside the Clifton Wall, which is part of Nassau Harbour, where the framework of the of the prop uh, can actually still be seen underwater. So if you go there, you can visit the uh, the, the, the prop underwater. Um, and apparently it's it's quite close to the sunken freighter that they used in Never Say Never Again. Mm. So, uh, yeah, apparently they're quite close together. Again, I've not been there. I couldn't tell you for sure if that's true. And then you've got a place called Clifton Pier, which is where Bond and Domino have their underwater uh, love moment. And that ha- they come ashore at a place called Love Beach, which obviously is quite apt. And we talked about Terence, Terence um, Young being sort of a bon vivant. Uh, apparently, according to Martin Bezik, he would turn up uh, at lunchtime. He would get picnics set up with tables, tablecloths, champagne on ice, proper cooked food brought to the set. We mentioned Field Q. Desmond Llewellyn got to travel to the Bahamas to, to shoot his scenes. Obviously, this is probably the biggest uh, on, on uh, location stuff that he's done yet for the Bond films. Um, but they bring him out to the Bahamas and the, the idea was that he would shoot his scenes as wet weather cover. So if the weather turned bad in the Bahamas, they'd go indoors, shoot the scenes with Desmond Llewellyn if it was raining. But eventually he was just sat around waiting for it to be wet that they just sent him home instead and they ended up just shooting all his scenes in Pinewood. So basically Desmond Llewellyn got a nice holiday mm. to the Bahamas out of it. Didn't have to do any work. So obviously we've got a, a lot of this film is underwater. So the underwater scenes, Lamar Boren, he shot the underwater scenes, and um, this this led to a long relationship with Eon. Um, and the scenes were directed by Riku Browning. He'd actually portrayed the Gill Man in underwater sequences in Creature from the Black Lagoon, Revenge of the Creature, and The Creature Walks Among Us in the fifties. Um, so quite knowledgeable at how to shoot these underwater scenes and made massive contributions to the film, um, rehearsing these sequences on a barge um, and using hand signals to coordinate the action because at this point they weren't able to use any sort of equipment to vocalise what they wanted wanted, wanted people to do. Um, And he also decided that the, uh, the green dye that we get from the submersible he decided how to 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 use that 
So, yeah, he also went on to direct the underwater scenes in Never Say Never Again. So, obviously, you know, right. it makes sense, doesn't it? It's a remake. Yeah, so Terence Young realised that the underwater, it doesn't really lend itself very well to being a Bond film. He said... It's a bit late now, though. Yeah, exactly. He said, you cannot move somebody underwater at more than four miles an hour without his mask coming off. So with that, it meant uh, a guy called Norman Wonstall. So he was a sound man, and um, he agreed with Terence Young. And he said all the underwater stuff was silent. And Peter Hunt said to me, this is going to be terribly tedious. I had all these great sounds. I thought I was really going to make my mark in the film. And so um, they went to a rough cut screening. Cubby was there. John Barry was there. And um, he'd put his sound over these underwater scenes. And John Barry was there and he said to him, Christ, I'm glad I came to this run. I was going to put 15 trombones over that. I was going to make it all bassy and deep. <laughs> but you're but you're doing it. We don't want to clash. Um, but then when the sound was all mixed in together, Barry's score, it does trumpet. Um, and so a lot of what Norman recorded and his tracks were lost. And he said his stuff was drowning mine and hours of work mixing underwater sounds never got heard, which is a shame. But it shows you the level of the detail they're going to to try and make it as interesting to watch as possible. Uh, and you know the tiny breathing um, gadget that we, we get that enables the rebreather, the rebreather yeah. um, which means you can survive underwater for several minutes. So a Royal Engineers uh, member called Peter Lamont and said, how does it actually work? Like, we're interested. How, how does this work? And he said, as long as you can hold your breath. And the engineer said that Bond was underwater for several minutes. And Lamont just said, that's the skill of the editor. And the engineer just hung up. Now, yeah. shooting with sharks. So Lamar Boren, now that it had been talk of... Um, you know, the sharks not being as lively as normal sharks, but he said that those sharks weren't drugged, nor were their jaws wired. They were the real thing. And Sean was depending on us to keep him out of trouble. But you really don't have to worry about sharks anyway, unless there's blood in the water or a lot of garbage. And in that pool, the sharks were very sluggish. They ended up ignoring Sean and just swimming around. Um, Upon finding out that he would be shooting with sharks, he said, no, I bloody well won't. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, they weren't they weren't able to do it with stunt doubles on this, and so they had to do it with Sean Connery. And uh, he asked Ken Adam to build a perspex corridor, and so that he would be protect, protected. But Ken Adam actually ran out of perspex while building building it, and had to leave um, had to leave a four foot gap. But he didn't tell Sean Connery, so they let him let him go in. And he, Connery swims in the pools and the sharks they managed to find the gap which is typical isn't it they found the gap and um, Terence Young said that the terror in his eyes the face that you see is genuine but yeah the the, the, the talk of a, a supposedly dead shark as well did you read the, read about this yes yeah just just before you move on to that the the story there's a really good clip on the um, dvd extras where connery says i think he he jumped out so fast he was dry when he when he got out <laughs> 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 that was such a funny uh, scotsman type thing to say um 
But yeah, I did read the stuff about the uh, the, the dead shark as yeah, well. Yeah, so John Steers, who was the special effects supervisor, he was preparing a supposedly dead shark that would chase Bond out of the pool on the fishing line. And so the the shark lands into his arms and Steers had to race out of the pool to safety because it wasn't dead. He'd been hurled into the pool with, with live sharks. So the actor, Bill Cumming, who portrayed Largo's... Uh, minion demanded 250 pounds for the a fee to be to work with sharks which i think is fair isn't it it's fair yeah. to ask for that but sean connery did learn his lesson and uh, the other open water scenes featuring sharks he was doubled by an actor called frank cousins no more of that i think that's probably one too many i i wouldn't i don't think i'd be up for it no to be fair no def- definitely not and th- it does blow your mind to think back to this time where they were just letting the people swim around with real sharks and it was yeah. like just it was just fine um yeah that that's uh that is funny and in fact i've got some quotes from connery in a minute um to talk about um his dissatisfaction on on this film but um i just wanted to take it back because there was something i meant to include in my notes about the junkanoo um section which is the famous shot in the Junkanoo section of the peeing dog. Have you seen this? <laughs> no. There's a shot in the Junkanoo where there's a dog right in the middle of it and he just like cocks his leg and pees. Um, and famously, Peter, Peter Hunt said that this was shot but then left on the cutting room floor. But when I think when Cubby and Harry spotted it, they like, thought it was so funny that they kept it in. Um, and in fact, around those scenes as well, there was, you know, I said it was locals that had turned up to film it. They turned up wearing 007 hats. Um, and so in some shots, you can see these guys wearing 007 hats uh, in the background. So, um, yeah, just a, a fun little trivia there for you. But yes, let's talk about Connery, because as you've mentioned, um, he was not in the best frame of mind making this movie. He'd come basically become very ambivalent towards the role. Um, and having just had success filming Marnie uh, with Hitchcock and also The Hill, uh, which is he rates as one of his best acting performances. He could just see other things on the horizon. I think he was just getting bored of it. And also his two and a half year marriage to Diane Salento was also in the midst of breaking down. So uh, in an interview, he said, Bond's been good to me, so I shouldn't knock him. But he's fed, I'm fed up to here with the whole Bond bit. And Thunderball, with it being at the centre of this Bond universe and this spy mania, it was hundreds and hundreds of uh, press came to visit the set of the Thunderbolt of Thunderball in the UK and in the Bahamas. Connery refused to talk to anyone. He granted just one interview to promote the film and that was with Playboy. And this is the infamous interview in which Connery makes um, some unsavoury remarks about hitting women, uh, which we covered at length on the Connery episode. So if you want to go back into that, then uh, visit that episode. But um, one of the quotes he says, I said, in this interview he says i find that fame tends to turn one from an actor and a human being into a piece of merchandise a public institution well i don't intend to undergo that metamorphosis 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you can just sort of get a sense, you know, when the time is hitting for Bond to start merchandising itself to death, Connery is already sick of it. So it's a recipe for disaster, mm. really. And talking about swimming, he says, like he was asked by um, Playboy what sports he enjoyed. And he said, like Bond, I'm fond of swimming. But on the surface, all this stuff underwater with bottles of oxygen strapped to one's back in Thunderball doesn't thrill me to bits. I have a fear of sharks and barracudas and I have no hesitation at all in in admitting it. It's not that I'm allergic to them. It's just plain fear. So you can see there they really peed him off Mm. with this shark stuff. And then just some of the other quotes. I mean, this interview is absolutely uh, brilliant. If you ever hear, really want to hear what Connery has to say for himself, seek it out. Um, his, he was asked, what was your first reaction when you were offered the role? He said, after I got over my surprise and began to consider it, I didn't want to do it because I could see that properly made, it would have to be the first of a series. And I wasn't sure I wanted to get involved in that and the contract that would go with it. Contracts choke you and I wanted to be free. And then talking about continuing with the series after Thunderball, he says, we have to be careful where we go next, because I think with Thunderball, we've reached the limits as far as size and gimmicks are concerned. Ken Adam says, hold my beer. Um, (laughs) Everyone says, hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) So all the gimmicks have now been done and, and they are expected. What is needed now is a change of course, more attention to character and better dialogue. And this is a good one. He says... You are you are the one identified as Bond in the public mind. Aren't you concerned about being typecast? And he says, <laughs> let me straighten you out on this. The problem in interviews of this sort is to get across the fact without breaking your ass that one is not Bond, that one was functioning reasonably well before Bond and that one is going to function reasonably well after Bond. So that's a great quote, mm. I think. And there was also reports of him um the publicity people behind the film had warned Playboy that he can be short-tempered and high-handed. And he asked what that was about. And he says, look, during my working day, I'll give you my full pound of flesh to the film. The interviews, publicity, exploitation and what have you come have to come second because otherwise what really counts suffers. And then he tells a story about being interviewed by a French lady on Goldfinger. And she asked him what the film was called. She asked him what part he was playing. She asked him who, who he was starring opposite and he told her Gert Frobe and she said, I've never heard of her. And that just he just absolutely <laughs> flipped, flipped the table and walked off from this interview. So, uh, yeah, to be a fly on the wall for that one. Wow. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it all basically um, uh, it's just it's symptoms of him being done with the role. Um, And he even turned down the chance to appear in a documentary called The Incredible World of James Bond, which was a promotional TV special that was going to be broadcast on NBC. And he just refused to take part. But Pepsi had sponsored this um, TV special and they asked Joan Crawford to go to Connery to ask him personally if they could make him change his mind. But he would not do it. Um, And um, they even offered him a cut of the profits from this TV special um, and 
but he turned it down and this, they made the special about James Bond without James Bond um, and it still went to air. I mean, at this point, 62, 63, 64, 65, you can't blame him for being a little bit bored. It's been relentless, hasn't mm. it? It has been non-stop, mm. back-to-back, overlap. It's basically all he's talked about for four years and done. Yeah. I mean, he would be filming, promoting, filming, yeah. promoting. Yeah. So it's no, it's no surprise at all, really. You know, we saw how That's Daniel all. Craig more recently got fed up with it and he gets a gap in between. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, non-stop there. Um, so uh, back to Shrublands. Um, that was shot on location at Chalfant Park House. And you can see Cubby's Rolls-Royce um, with the number plate Cub 1 in the background. Nice little cameo. Yeah, nice cameo. Um, and um, there's a line as well as Bond's leaving and trying to arrange further liaisons with um, Molly. And uh, he says, another time, another place. And... Um, that's a reference to a Sean Connery film, 1958 film, starring Lana Turner. I think that's the one where he had a lot of bother on that's the crazy the story. The, the <laughs> yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that is a, a direct reference to that film, uh, that line. Um, so at Silverstone uh, Racetrack, this is where Fiona Volpe's uh, execution of Count Lippi was filmed. And... Uh, Steers, John Steers says, um, we shot that sequence for real, real bike, real rockets, and the car was doing 60, 70 miles an hour, and the bike was doing about 100 maybe. It had to be going to going that fast to get clear of the debris. So they used a Aston Martin DB5, a 1957 Ford Fairline Skyliner, um, and a, a Lightning, an A65 Lightning, which was Written by, ridden by Bill Ivey, who was a British motorcycle champion. And he was doubling for uh, Luciana Paluzzi as Volpe. So it was it was modified. They'd modified it to include a, a, a rocket, like a fake rocket. And um, Bob Simmons drove the Ford. He stood in for Guy Dolman. Um, and Simmons activated the fire, which was caused by the missile missile by a switch in the car's dashboard. So that would then turn the fire on, look as though it's it's been hit. Um, but Terence Young was really concerned for Bob Simmons' safety during this um, because he didn't see him jump clear of the burning car just before it exploded. So once the scene was captured, I mean, there's the, once the scene was captured, <laughs> Young and his crew rushed over and they feared the, the worst. But... Uh, Simmons popped up and he'd managed to jump clear at the last possible moment. But um, he didn't realise that and he was just, he didn't know what all the fuss was about. Um, it's like that scene from uh, The Last Crusade, isn't it? Where the tank goes over the edge of the cliff. Yeah. And, and that's got Connery in it, hasn't yeah. it? Because he's, he's, he's like crying over his dad, isn't he? And then he, Connery just pops up. So in terms of uh, Pinewood, back to Pinewood again. And um, Ken Adam talks about the big challenges on this one. Um, so the Disco Volante was a difficult one. Um, he said the concept he came up with is to have a hydrofoil with a catamaran around it. Um, he said they also built a full-size bomber out of fibreglass. And um, 
John Steers then made a model of it, which was 12 foot, and um, they would stage the crash landing in the sea with the model and then used the full-sized plane for the underwater sequences. Um, but in terms of the set, like these classic Ken Adam sets, he said he was getting a bit fed up with boardrooms by this point. He said, so for Blofeld's headquarters, I decided I would not have a table, just chairs with a gangway in the centre, and each chair would have a console. Since you're not supposed to see the head of Spectre, um, he had behind him Venetian blinds. In the story, one of the members of Spectre was electrocuted while sitting in the chair, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny to have the chair disappear into the floor and come back up empty? Everyone went for it, and that's what we did. So you see Ken Adams having to think bigger and more different, you know, to try and alleviate his own boredom, I guess. Um, Something we see him go above and beyond in the next film. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, yeah, what do you think of that, um, the set, the Blofeld headquarters set? Uh, For me, I think it's like the pinnacle of what, how Spectre is portrayed on screen. I Mm -hmm. think it's just absolutely... uh, it's sensational. It's inspired, yep. and obviously, it's inspired pretty much every parody of uh, of Bond ever since, or at least of like, you know, evil corporation or evil e- evil organizations. They have that sort of um, design um, that they work from. I think the, what's also really nice about that room is how it's mirrored in the meeting that Bond attends. Um, in that. Uh, they're all it's more, it's a more democratic way they're all sat around the, the, the in a line yeah. um and that's a more sort of organic wooden sort of place whereas where spectre are it's all silver and metal and harsh and uh i just love the how those two are sort of juxtaposed with each yeah. other yeah it's fantastic i think also putting blofeld behind the blind that is inspired as well and it's something they could yeah. have continued you know for a few more films at least before we saw Blofeld. Do you think you can get away with things like that nowadays, like not showing who the, one of the main characters is? Um, I'm trying to think of is it a recent film or franchise that's done it. Is there one? I can't think of one. You know, you're waiting to find out who the person yeah. is behind it. They just, it feels like they don't, they can't have that sort of level of suspense. It's kind of, you have to know who it is and it's like part of the... Um... Yeah, it's a, it's a shame, isn't it? And I think what with um, social media and leaks and stuff, I, I just think it'd be spoiled pretty quickly. Yeah. But who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, just a little fun fact as well, but about the the meeting that Bond goes to um, in that boardroom where all the other double O agents are. Mm. The seat that's been left for him is the seventh seat along double O seven. Yeah. Seats. So there you go. Got a little fun trivia. Well, now that we're all here. So visual effects, we've mentioned it quite a lot already. And uh, John Steers was the guy who did the visual effects on this movie. And you've mentioned so many of them already. You've mentioned the the yacht. Um, you've got the Vulcan bomber, um, the, 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 the motorcycle, the rocket firing motorcycle. But other ones worth mentioning are obviously you've got the Aston Martin returning the DB5. But now with rear water cannons and that sort of a John Steers um, addition on that. 
And then also a lot of the underwater vehicles, the flying the flying saucer itself, that was a John Steers creation, I believe. Um, so this was the, the the movie that gave that won Bond uh, a visual effects Oscar. So all of these things sort of uh, contributed to it. Um, one of the other special effects, uh, which is quite good, is the skyhook that rescues Bond at the end of the film. And that was being used by the Royal Military at the time. And Charles Russian was the guy who managed to um, uh, get hold of that for the movie. Um, but one sort of thing, it's a well-documented anecdote about the movie. But the uh, John Steers, he was charged with bringing the explosion for the Disco Volante. And he took... Uh, delivery of this fuel for the bomb or for the explosion from Charles Russian but what they had been given um, basically was this absolute rocket fuel so they doused this this model in the fuel went back to a safe distance set the bomb off but the explosion was so huge in fact it lifted the boat completely out of the water and they, it managed to shatter windows 30 miles away according to reports crazy um, so they were lucky, really. Mm. Um, but yeah, this was this was the film that won Bond the Oscar uh, for best visual effects. And John Steers, I believe, is the last visual effects uh, artist to win an Oscar with just one name on the statue. Um, so that's mm. quite an incredible achievement, really. And talking about it, he said, I was very proud, very honoured because the Oscar is re- really the highest accolade of them all. It's a humbling experience, too, for I'm only doing what I love doing. And the award is one hell of a plus. You know, you don't make pictures with the thought of an Oscar on your mind. But actually, winning one is the thrill of a lifetime. I hope to win another one someday. Um, and he wasn't even at the Oscars. He didn't expect to win. But he apparently, when he got to America, he was there was a package waiting for him. Uh, he opened it up and it was his Oscar, which uh, quite a nice little treat. Wow, what a package. What a package to receive. package. But yeah, I mean, that wraps up the shooting, basically. Um, so we can move into post-production. So the music, um, so who who do we get back for music? Well, John Barry, he's had a massive success with Goldfinger, you know, the year before. So obviously they're going to want him back. Um, he he was under no illusions of how big this challenge was. Um, the film was going to be longer as well. So, well, that means more music by default. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he'd, he'd got the... He's got all the experience under his belt from the previous Bonds. Um, but he wanted a range of music that matched the ambition, the action, the exotic glamour of this film. Um, so he reuses the 007 uh, theme, um, which he had composed for From Russia With Love, um, which instead of using the Monty Norman James Bond theme... Um, it's quite a good hybrid of a of a soundtrack, actually. It's like all it really all the is. ingredients coming together, isn't it? Everything he's he knows works. He's put it in this in this soundtrack. Um, yeah. He had a lot of pressure on getting this one right, though. And um, when they released the soundtrack album on, on the LP, it only contained tracks from the first half of the movie because he was still completing uh, the background score for the rest of the film. And this this propels John Barry into being an internationally sought after composer at this point. 
he's had huge successes. So not long after this, in 66, he wins his first Oscar for Born Free. And then two years after that, another Oscar for The Lion in Winter. So yeah, this is like his um, graduation, I guess, this one. Of, of, you know, putting all that hard work in and it, it all comes together. And he's proven that he can do it, hasn't he? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think they released the, the the full soundtrack years later, mm. didn't they? A sort of a remastered version of the soundtrack with more of the music in it. Yeah. And a lot of the issues with the music, I think, were caused by the title song, um, as I'll explain. Um, because there was a last minute change of the title song uh, on this movie. So... Before we get to that, though, when it was announced that Thunderball was going to be the next uh, James Bond film to be adapted for the big screen, um, Eon was received a song uh, from Johnny Cash. So the country legend Johnny Cash thought he wanted to get in on the James Bond action. Um, But the song that he submitted, also called Thunderball, was not uh, selected to be used for the film. Um, it's good though it's worth listening to it'd be a very different movie with this song on <laughs> on the front of it though just a sample of the lyrics somewhere there is a man who could stop the thing in time he's known by very few but he's feared by all in crime by courage and by fighting he has not been known to fall but neither has the fury of the mighty Thunderball, Thunderball. And all the world can hear it call They shudder at the fury of the mighty thunderball So yeah, after after Goldfinger, John Barry really really wanted to knock it out of the park again with another great theme song for Thunderball. Didn't really like the title. Is a bit of a weird word, isn't it? It just doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, but he had ideas for another song. So he had been on a flight from London to the US when he read a newspaper article um, which said that the Italians called James Bond Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And he thought we can redefine Bond through the lyrics, through that title. And Harry and Cubby saw the wisdom in that and they approved it. Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was going to be the film film's song for the titles. And... They even changed the club in Nassau to the Kiss Kiss Club uh, after that. So that's why you see the Kiss Kiss Club in the film. So he went to the set in Nassau to soak up the music for inspiration. And then he returned to London and he wrote Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Leslie Brickus writing the lyrics. And it's a jazz waltz. Um, Leslie Brickus said, John called me to say that Harry and Cubby were very taken with the nickname Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It came very quickly too. It was dead easy, that one. I loved the tune. I just think there's an excitement in jazz waltzes and the fact that it was jazzy suited the character of the man and the piece. But um, uh, Brickus hadn't seen any footage or read any script. He just worked with the title and John Barry's music. Um, And he was um, very complimentary about uh, Barry. Uh, he, he sort of saw him as one of the uh, top film composers. So after they'd written the song, they chose Dionne Warwick to sing the song. And she came to London in September 1965 to record it with John Barry. Um, and Barry later said, Dion's was marvellous. It was a 3-4 kind of thing with a whole section of cowbell doing the rhythm. It was a strange kind of song, but I liked, liked it, he added. He's tall and he's dark. And like- 
like a shark He looks for trouble That's why the zeros double Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang Now, the problem with this song was that they had mandated that there was going to be... It had to have a 48-second intro because nobody wanted the vocal to start until the title Thunderball appeared on the screen. So the version, the Dionne Warwick version, is absolutely stunning. It's an incredible piece of work. But the intro is so long. It's ridiculously long. Um, uh, and so they were in the midst of then of, of moving on. John Barry was writing the score. He was writing all the, the, the orchestration based with uh, making a score based on the melody of the song Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And partway through, Cubby and Harry came to him and said that Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was not going to be used in the film. They just completely cut it from the movie. Um, they decided that they had to have a song called Thunderball. Um, and that, I think it came probably from United Artists. They wanted that title on the radio advertising the movie, right? Mm -hmm. So it kind of makes sense. Um, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, it doesn't mean anything. So it was back to the drawing board. Leslie Brickers found he was too busy writing songs for uh, Dr. Doolittle. So Barry turned to Don Black to help him write the lyrics who had obviously done uh, worked with Matt Monroe uh, on from Russia with love. So um, they set about writing a new song and um, yeah, as we discussed on the Leslie Brickers episode ages and ages ago, they were stumped by the word Thunderball. Um, but uh, he got the very first line and that's where he, he got, uh, that's where he began. He always runs while others walk and he thought, well, that's Bond, isn't it? And when he wrote it, he thought of two things, James Bond and Shirley Bassey. So he really thought Shirley Bassey was going to be the one to sing this. Um, but the the song was written over uh, um, a weekend. And actually, the person they brought in to sing it was Tom Jones, who was a friend of Don Black's. And he'd had obviously had two top 10 hits that year. You've already mentioned one of them, What's New Pussycat? And also, It's Not Unusual. And he agreed to do it. Don Black loved it. Um, and the enemy announced that uh, Joe, Tom Jones was going to sing the title track in September and they went into the uh, studio on October the 11th to, to lay it down and Tom Jones obviously just smashes it out of the park um, he said the most memorable thing about the session was hitting that note at the end John told me to hold on to this very high note for as long as possible and obviously that final note lasts I mean it's a legendary now but it lasts a full nine seconds um, and in the, if you listen to just the isolated vocal recording, you can hear him running out of breath, but you, that part is sort of buried in the mix. He said, I closed my eyes, hit the note and held on. When I opened my eyes, the room was spinning. I had to grab hold of the booth I was in to steady myself. If I hadn't, I would not, I would not have passed out or maybe fallen down, but it paid off because it's a long note and it's very high. Um, now there is some confusion over whether the song is about the Bond, about Bond or the villain. Tom Jones says it's about neither. It's just a song. Don Black says it's about James Bond. John Barry said he didn't care. Um, <laughs> but then um, Barry took the song and he then in, uh, wove it into the, 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 the score of the film. He created a number of cues that reference the, the, the music from Thunderball music. And so it becomes part of the score. So he strikes like thunder. So, but Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the song, it does, it did live on. 
they hired Shirley Bassey to come in to re-record it so it would play over the end credits. And she did that the day after Tom Jones has recorded his title track on the 12th of October. And news of her involvement then soon hit the newspapers. Um, so everyone knew, oh, Shirley Bassey's working on the new um, James Bond film. And they also knew that Tom Jones was as well. But again, at the 11th hour, they decided not to use Shirley Bassey's song on the, uh, on the end uh, credits. And John Barry said he was never happy with Shirley Bassey's takes. He said that she said ban ban instead of bang bang. And when you listen to it, you can hear what he's talking about. And she actually filed a lawsuit against them to have it reinstated. She actually the lawsuit was to have the film delayed so that they could put the music back on, um, but that um, that didn't happen. Uh, that lawsuit was settled, but it caused a massive rift between Shirley Bassey's manager. Alan Hume um, and Harry and Cubby. He, I think he was the man behind the lawsuit, to be honest, but he died in 1967 and obviously they patched things up and she returned to sing Diamonds Are Forever. But both versions of Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang were not released properly until the 1990s. So um, that they have only recent uh, discoveries from that. Um, but the Thunderball single itself didn't do massively well in the charts. It hit at 35 in the UK charts and number 25 in the US charts. That's shocking. It is, isn't it? It's one yeah. of the all-time greats, if you ask me. Um, and then famously, Weird Al parried it, parried it in the 1996 movie Spy, Spy Hard, where he sings the final note for so long that his head explodes, which, again, is worth checking out. And then we need some titles to go with that that song. And so Morris Binder comes back after being away. Um, he said it was due to having a bit of a ruckus at the time with the producers. Um, so the climax, like I said, the climax of that pre-title sequence, it inspired him. He said it was an underwater picture. The last scene before the titles had this jet of water coming from Bond's Aston Martin at these guys who were trying to shoot him. So that filled the screen with water and we segued into our titles. Um he was also inspired in other ways. So he was drinking at Raymond's Review Bar, uh, which is uh, which was a gentleman's sort of club in Soho in London. And he saw two girls swimming in a tank above the bar. So that got him, got his mind racing. And uh, yeah, we, we see the inspiration in this. Um, so in July 65, he shot the title sequence. And... Um, he used the Pinewood tank to to shoot the underwater scenes in the sequence. Um, and he remembers filming the girls. He said they were underwater swimmers, but they balked at being photographed in the nude. I said, go put the makeup on. And suddenly these two girls came out all nude. I said, I thought you didn't want to be want to appear nude. And they said, this is not us. They said they had so much black paint on, they felt they were fully clothed. So just absolutely lathered it on. They didn't mind. Um, so he shot them, he shot the girls using black and white film against a white background and then shot bubbles against a black background. And, uh, then this allowed him to alter any color at his own will, you know, to create the look that he wanted. Um, so yeah. What do you think of these, these ones? Well, I mean, these are the ones I think, uh, that really set the template for the rest of the series, don't they? Mm. And I know we talked a lot about, um, the Robert Brown John efforts yeah. and the last two um, and the projection onto the bodies and the, the female shapes. But this is really the one that um, 
changes them forever and that sort of yeah. distinctive royal blue color um mm-hmm. it just becomes so instantly uh recognizable uh, this is what bond titles should look like yeah yeah and it massively helps you've got a a classic of a song to go over it as well absolutely it? yeah yeah uh, before we move on to the Reese, I just wanted to mention the posters for this movie. I know we don't often talk about the posters, but I think the posters on this one are so distinctive and so memorable. I'd rather uh, mention it. But Frank McCarthy and Bob McGuinness were the artists behind the Thunderball posters. And they, like the title, set the template for what Bond posters could be over the next few years. And they returned to do the posters for You Only Live Twice and On A Majesty's Secret Service. And it's this classic hand-painted style. Frank did the action stuff and Bob generally did the women. Um, but I think this is the golden age for Bond posters, if you ask me. Thunderball, um, mm-hmm. You Only Live Twice, On A Majesty's Secret Service. And when you look at them, you can see, you know, it just speaks bond and i just wanted to mention that um yeah absolute legends um and a key part of the uh the bond series but yeah i mean that's the film i mean let's talk about the release because this film is massive this is a huge release this is the biggest bond film yet um and the premiere of thunderball was scheduled for thursday october the 21st 1965 uh the odin leicester square but because of delays in post-production, it was the London premiere was cancelled. So rather than having its premiere in London, Thunderball had its world premiere in Tokyo, Japan on 9th of December because this is where Bond fever was at fever pitch. And it, its reception there was believed to be one of the reasons they decided to shoot You Only Live Twice there next. Then it had its US premiere at the Paramount Theatre in New York on the 21st of December 1965. And that cinema had installed a booth outside where you could watch the trailer. So you could literally go up to look in a box and it's playing the trailer constantly. Wow. Um, so it's a nice little uh, promo for, for the film. But the demand for the film when it opened there was so huge that it had to stay open 24 hours a day. Um, and uh, the executives had a Bond double coming down to the cinema wearing a jetpack. But because they hadn't secured permission from New York police... They were actually arrested for not having <laughs> the right permits. Um, so then on the other side of Christmas, Thunderball had two gala premieres on the 29th of December in, in 1965. One at the Pavilion Theatre in Piccadilly Circus and then one at the Rialto Theatre on Coventry Street, 100 yards away. So after that, supper party was served for the guests at the Royal Garden Hotel. And members of the cast included uh, Claudine Noguerre, Adolfo Celli, Martin Bezik and Honor Blackman and Tanya Mallet also turned up as well. There was no Sean Connery, no Harry Saltzman and no Cubby. Cubby was grieving for his mother who'd recently passed away. But there was an Irish premiere as well. And Cubby was in attendance there with Luciana Paluzzi and Molly Peters. In terms of reviews, actually, the reviews for Thunderball are generally positive. Um, Variety said... Connery is up to his usual stylish self as he lives up to his past rep in which mayhem is a casual affair. Terence Young takes advantage of every situation in his direction to maintain action at fever pitch. And the film actually has a 85% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I'm wow. surprised by. Um, New York Times said, Mr. Fleming's superhero still performed by Sean Connery has guided through this ad- and guided through this adventure by the director of his first two, Terence Young, has not only power over women... 
miraculous physical reserves, skill in perilous manoeuvres and knowledge of all great things, great and small. But he also has a much better sense of humour than he has shown in his previous films. And this is the secret ingredient that, that makes Thunderball the best of the lot. Um, LA Times weren't as uh, generous. They said it has the same of its... It is the same as its predecessors, only more too much of everything with from a sudden desire to sudden desire. Um, but they did like uh, actually Time magazine. They liked the underwater stuff, um, but they said that Thunderball spreads a treasury of wish fulfillment fantasy over a nickel's worth of plot. So that's the reviews. But then it went on general release in London uh on January the 2nd 1966 and there were sellout midnight screenings and the reports of standing audiences cramming in to see the movie and it was just a massive massive hit it was the top grossing film in the UK and the US in 1966 Connery himself was the top grossing actor in both 65 and 66 in Paris the film took $95,000 in three days Rome 79,000, Milan 25,000. It basically just shattered records everywhere it opened. And by the end of its first run, it had grossed $141 million, uh, which is just absolutely huge. It was bigger than the earnings of the first three films combined. And adjusted for inflation, that's $1.249 billion. Wow. Making it the second most successful Bond film ever behind only Skyfall and on a cost per ticket basis it's the biggest ticket seller to date with an estimated 130 million tickets sold to see Thunderball it's just mind-blowing it's actually mind-blowing how big it is Um, and in terms of awards we've mentioned it already it won an Oscar for visual effects and then Ken Adam had been nominated for best production design at the BAFTAs but yeah, I mean, it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal smash hit. And it just played forever, basically. Um, just kept on on going. So before we talk about the, 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 sort of the history and the legacy and the reputation of the film, have we got any three-word reviews, Brendan? Yes, quite a lot, actually, for this one, as you'd expect. Uh, the Bond Bulletin said glamorous espionage thriller. Um, but Ratman says too much underwater, That's, yeah. which is interesting. Um, Martin Barrett also says slow underwater action Uh, Nikolai Quack says uh, stunning underwater sequences so again the underwater it's dividing people isn't it Trevor Baxendale said Connery's best bond which is interesting because you've got quite a lot to choose from so um, um, but yeah there's a lot of um, (laughs) a lot of people saying there's lots of swimming underwater bit dull um, but pods like us said absolutely bloody awesome, and Chris Mass said worst Connery Bond. Right. So again, this is this is one of those that that is dividing people. Um, there's a there's quite a bit of love for Fiona Volpe. Stunning opening song says Simon Barrel Breeze Boys. So um, totally agree on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Tony G says big big bombastic Bond, and you can't you can't argue with that really either, can you? <laughs> war shine lit cringe says so much water <laughs> so that the, the underwater thing seems to be the the thing that people are focusing on there and obviously it takes up about a third of the film doesn't it yeah um, and it's what, what's interesting is is that it's um uh, at the time it was you know a, a whole new 
filming technique. It was all brand new, thrilling, um, never been seen before. Yeah. But sadly, I think it's obviously been done so much since then. And it, te- filming techniques have become so much easier that it's actually not as, as exciting as it once was. So I think that's possibly mm. reason for some of the luster coming off it. Um, but having seen it on the big screen, I didn't feel like it does drag a little bit. Um, the underwater stuff, but I think it is better. You get more from it on the big screen than you do watching it at home, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't like underwater scenes in in any film, not just this, just across yeah. the board. I'm not interested. Yeah, yeah, that that that's my thoughts on the underwater. But generally, as a whole, where where do you stand with Thunderball? Um, very indifferent to it, actually. Indifferent, yeah. leaning leaning towards not liking it. Right. I, it definitely, if I was to put a bond on, it's not going to be in the top 15. So, right. Yeah, there's there's not too much underwater. It takes it away. Yeah, I don't really care for the villain that much either. Mm. What do you think of the villain? I think he's good. I think he's good. Uh, he's sort of, I think he brings, I mean, it could just have been quite a basic heavy, but I think he does bring some menace to it. Um I don't know if it's. I don't think he's one of the all-time greats, but but the film itself is treated as a as a classic, isn't it? It is. I mean, I think because of its uh, because of its box office status, it is considered one of the heavyweight Bond films, right? And it was the yeah. first of the epic Bond movies. This was definitely a step up from what they'd done with Goldfinger, and would be the template that they followed from here on in, uh, really, until. I mean, I'm just trying to think big. They, they go bigger and better. I mean, I guess Live and Let Die sort of dials it back a little bit, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, I mean, I I, I like it. I, I think it's um, I think it gets a bit of a bad rep for being, you know, boring or, or whatever and, and Connery not being that interested. But it's got a lot. There is a lot to enjoy in it, I think. Um, I'd certainly put it on over Diamonds Are Forever. Um, that's for sure. Um, yeah, but that's a low bar. That is a low bar. <laughs> agreed, a low bar. It, I tell you what, it does. It does feel like a classic uh, Christmas Day, Boxing Day. It's ITV a bank holiday. Film. It's exactly it is, a bank isn't holiday. It? Bond. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, one hundred percent. One to watch with the dad, with your dad um, on the sofa with the Baileys. Um, yeah. Um, another, another. Just talking about the legacy. I tried to find this out, but I couldn't. You know the lottery draw that's called Thunderball. Yes. That has to be named after this film, right? It has to be. I couldn't. I couldn't find confirmation. Anything. It isn't anything, is it? No. So surely that's what it is. You know, yeah. where else would they have got that from? Yeah. I mean, um, I, I guess the legacy to talk about with this film is is obviously all the legal ramifications that came after it. Mm. But we can't go over that again. Um, no. Just, just to the, say, just to say that. If this hadn't been such a success, would McClory maybe have put it to bed? That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, because he's seen this to be the most successful Bond and he's got the rights to it. Yeah. Of course, 10 years later, he's going to try again. Yeah, if he had the rights to Octopussy, I mean, it would be a bit different, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I actually prefer the remake. I actually yeah. prefer Never Say Never Again. I know you do. I know you do. I just... I. I would just have Connery at his prime over over Connery there. But I would say Fatima Blosh is a great addition. Um, and mm. we've talked about this stuff to death. I mean, we could could go over this stuff, but we have done a whole episode on Never Say Never Again. So, uh, yeah, please feel, feel, feel free to revisit that one. 
But the only other thing I was going to mention was the, just the sheer amount of merchandising that came along with Thunderball. Yeah, um, I, read, I read this in the Legacy as well. Yeah. Uh, there's a chapter in it it's insane how much stuff there is yeah and also the the brand tie in the product placements in the movie as yeah. well this is re- really where you just see everything explode uh out from this one um so yeah that's that's the legacy of this one i guess um uh, and the one they follow it with will be our our final movie special episode brendan yeah and i'm really looking forward to that because it, it's uh it's one that i've changed my opinion of very recently yeah, me too, me too. It's the, you, you Only Live Twice um, will be in a few weeks' time. Um, before then, we've got to get through U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Um, and then we'll get to You Only Live Twice. So I'm um, looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We'll be doing the film first, or are we finishing on the You Only Live Twice? Well, I'll, we'll figure it out. I think maybe we'll okay. finish on the Only Live Twice. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I guess that's it then. So um, if people want to find us on social media, Brendan, how can they get a hold of us? At James Bond Data Z on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to email the show, uh, which we always encourage you to do, it's podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Um, and so on that note, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond podcast, James Bond A to Z podcast, will return next week. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This is the raincoat they styled for Bond. Styled for Bond by Burton. Exclusive raincoat. Styled for Bond by Burton. The James Bond 007 raincoat. Only at Burton. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.